tonight, let's open our Bibles to Second Chronicles. We're going to look at chapter 8 through 10 tonight, Lord willing. And let's just get right into it. It says, The family tree of King Saul of Benjamin. Now, as we've been going through this, we, you know, in the very beginning, we looked at, um, you know, the Lord is, through the Spirit of God, the, the chronicler here, who we believe is Ezra, is really going to be focusing, the whole First Chronicles and Second Chronicles is really focused on the line of Judah, the line of kings from David going, you know, and going forward to Zedekiah, which was Israel's or the Judah's last king. But first and first and second chronicles are really focused on the Judean kings, the Davidic dynasty. And there's really no mention, uh, other than by passing perhaps, of the kings of the north, because the chronicler is not concerned about the kings of the north. It's focused on, on Judah. And why Judah? Because we know that Judah is the tribe from which Jesus, the Messiah, would come through. And so it's proving that showing that that line is the one that's important. And, and I believe, and I believe you believe this too, that everything in the Word of God, remember this is a canon of Scripture, that it, people have, you know, have, have, have scrutinized this book, and these books have been canonized for a reason, they've been brought into the Bible, and the Spirit of God, I believe, was all over that. And it's included here to prove something, to show something, to get across the point of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a book of redemption, and it's all about Jesus Christ ultimately. And even the things in Leviticus, even the things in Leviticus, all those sacrifices, all that worship, in some way, shape, or form have a reference or have a a type, if you will, of Jesus Christ. It all points to him. It's all about him. Didn't he say in the volume of the book, it is written of me? Didn't David prophesy that? And didn't Jesus say that to the Pharisees and the scribes? In the volume of the book, it is written of me. And all they had was the Old Testament at that time, Genesis through Malachi. And maybe, you know, they might have only had the law and, and some of the prophets, perhaps all of them. But it's all about Jesus. Now tonight, you know, as we've been going, we've been looking at uh, some of the tribes of Israel, and there's been two tribes that have been conspicuously absent, and we'll look at that. But tonight, notice in chapter 8, it says, the family tree of King Saul of Benjamin, of Benjamin. Now what does Benjamin have to do with the chronicles of the king's you know, the chronicles of the kings of Judah. Why is this even here? If the chronicler is only focused on Judah, then why, why do we bring up Saul at all? Well, because he was Israel's first king. And it shows the failure of, uh, of, the, of the country, uh, of the people of Israel from the very beginning. Their very first king wasn't a, a God-ordained king. They wanted, to be, they wanted a king like the rest of the nations around them, but it wasn't God's design. God had want, still wanted to govern them if they were willing, but they weren't willing. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. Does that sound familiar in our culture? Well, I, you know, everybody wants to be an individual, but everybody wants to be like everybody else. They want to have the same stuff. They want to dress the same way, have the same makeup, wear the same shoes, all that stuff, and yet we're, we, we scream that we want to be our, who are, you know, by ourselves or individuals, and we are. But why is it here? Because it was Israel's first king. And it's going to shut up, set up excuse me, a sharp contrast between the failure of what man wanted and then finally getting to what God really intended. Because as we will see, and as we've already looked at as we've gone through the book of First and Second Samuel, Saul was a, 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 wasn't a good king at all. It turned out to be quite the mess, King Saul. He wasn't obedient. He didn't listen. And God wished he hadn't you know, allowed him to be king, but he allowed the people to have what they wanted. And there's an, another thing, and as we get to the end of this in chapter 10, hopefully tonight, you'll see that it's a scary thing when 
you and I or a nation or a group of people want something so bad and we pound our fist. We want it, we want it, we want it. We don't care what it takes. God, this is what we want. We want it and we keep screaming at him and he goes, is that what you really want? Yeah, we really want it. Is that what you really want? Yes, that's what we want. And then he gives it to you and then after a while they're like, oh, that's not what we wanted. And God's like, yes. I know what you can't unknow. I know what you can't know. I know what you don't understand. You don't even understand your own flesh. Anybody here understand their own heart perfectly? I don't understand my heart. Sometimes I'm ashamed of the things I think, the things, of the, the, the things I feel. I'm ashamed of those things. And I'm glad that nobody sees it but God. And I'm ashamed of it. But they wanted Saul. So he's here briefly to set up a contrast. Man's failure, and then finally God's rightful king. Rightful king. Yes, David, a man after God's own heart. David, as we know, wasn't a perfect man. He committed sin. He committed some of the most atrocious sins that many of us in this room have not committed physically Many of you maybe haven't committed you know, a, a adultery with someone else's wife, and many in this room probably haven't killed another person and done both of those things, but he did. And yet God forgave him, and David is in glory. Isn't that wonderful news? Not because you know, God says, you know, God didn't wink at it and say, well, it's okay, David. I, you know, you were in the Bible and, you know, I got to let you in now. No, it had nothing to do with that. David cracked like an egg. He came to repentance and he never did it again. He had a weak moment. Does anybody have a weak moment? And you do something and, and, and it's a sinful thing and, 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 and maybe you've done it over and over again. Well, you keep repenting and, and you keep asking God to give you a heart that hates that thing so much so that someday... He's going to give you the gift of repentance. And so we have this contrast set up for us. But notice, so perhaps the reason the family of Saul, again, is mentioned here at all is because Saul was the first king. And it wasn't until after Solomon died that the kingdom was divided. Remember, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was king over Judah and Benjamin, and Jeroboam was king over the, the, the remainder of the northern ten tribes. But again, the chronicler isn't concerned with the genealogy of the house of Israel so much as he is with the kings of Judah because, and also the Levites because their lives are intertwined because of the temple and its sacrifices and its duties in Jerusalem. So this genealogy of Benjamin is, um, is much more complete than what was given back in chapter 7, verses um, I believe it's verse 12. So let's look at it. So now, Benjamin, and we're not going to read all of these names for the sake of time. We're going to read some of them and then, and then go right on to the point of the whole thing. So now Benjamin begot Bela, his firstborn, Ashbel the second, and Ahariah the third, Nohath the fourth, and Rapha the fifth. So Benjamin's five sons are listed here, although Genesis 46 also shows five other sons as well that are not recorded in this list. And Numbers 26, verses 38 through 40, also lists the family of Benjamin as well. And in verses 3 through 5, Bela, Benjamin's firstborn sons, they are listed here. And as you compare genealogies, and for instance, what I just said here just a moment ago, in Genesis 46 and then in Numbers 26, 38 through 40, as you compare those with what is here, um, remember that uh, the chronicler often will, will leave out certain things. And I don't know that it was necessarily a mistake by the copyist. It could have been. But once you go along, I mean, it, once you've uh, designated Isaac or Jacob and, and you give a, a few of those or a few after, you don't need to fill in every single one. Although the Bible is complete like that, there are you know, genealogies, and most of them are like consecutive, and, they, and there's no skipping between them. But sometimes, and we see this here in Chronicles, they'll, they'll be, it might not mention a, a line or a group of men and then skip to, uh, and everybody understands 
what's, what's happening. And, and they understand it's the same line. They don't need to fill in all of that extra names and et cetera. And, um, and what's interesting here is when it says, Now Benjamin begat, um, uh, let's see here. Oh, I wanted to say, uh, when you see the genealogies, remember that the word son can mean, and oftentimes it does mean, grandson. So it can be the literal son of someone, or it could be the grandson. And so you might skip over the, the son, but go right to the grandson. But you know the line that is being referred to, right? And a quick example of this is in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 24. Um, it says, now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, and many of you know Saul, and who is his son? Jonathan. And then Jonathan gave birth to Mephibosheth, right? So Mephibosheth is really his grandson, but yet the scripture says in 2 Samuel 19, 24, now, now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, etc., etc. So you understand that this word... And there's a good example, can mean grandson. It doesn't necessarily mean his son. It could mean his grandson. And that's exactly what, it, what happened there. And we'll see this later on in verse 34, that Mephibosheth is indeed Saul's grandson, of course. And so these omissions and additions in these genealogies seem to occur due to the purpose of the chronicler, for whatever their purpose is. And, and sometimes getting the complete picture of these things, you've got to do some homework. And put it all together. Sometimes you need to look at two or three lists in the Bible and fill in the blanks. Okay, but again, that's not a huge deal, but I just mentioned that because you might look at two different lists and see some differences. And sometimes there's even differences in spelling of names, variants. And sometimes the name will look completely different, and then you do a little homework and find out that that's actually the same person, but they were also called by another name. So it can get a little tricky, but knowing that as you go into these things will help you. And you just have to dig a little bit to find out, okay? So I say that by way of your own Bible study. And notice, in, and it says in verse 3 through 5, the sons of Bala, and it lists their names there. And then in verse 6, it says, These are the sons of Ehud, who were the heads of the fathers' houses of the inhabitants of Geba, and who forced them to move to um, Menahath. Now, Ehud was the grandson of Jedael, and you can read about him in uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 10 of Chronicles here. And Jedael may also be known as Ashbel. Okay, so there's one of those funny little names that uh, if you look at it, you're thinking, there's an error in the Bible, and it's really not an error. It's just uh, two different names. Sometimes they have variant spellings, similar. So you just got to do your homework. And then continuing on from verse 7, all the way down to, let's see, all the way down to um, verse 27, you know, it talks about these different sons. And then finally in verse 28, it says, Now these were the heads of the father's houses by their generations, the chief men of Benjamin. And these dwelt in Jerusalem. They dwelt in Jerusalem. Now the father of Gibeon. Now remember, Gibeon was the uh, area that was the capital of, uh, of Israel at one point in the early part. The father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Maacah, she dwelt at Gibeon. And this father of Gibeon, his name was Jael. I'm probably messing up his name here, J-I-L. And uh, you can also read in uh, Chronicles uh, chapter 9. Uh, verse 35 through 36, and it, it shows that uh, J.L., or J.L., uh, actually, he's the father of Gibeon. And so we see uh, Saul's genealogy is listed uh, not only here, but it, uh, you remember, or actually, we're going to get to it, excuse me. And it's also listed in Chronicles chapter 9, verses 35 through 44, which we will look at shortly. But this one in Chronicles 8, is much more extensive, going all the way back to Benjamin, remember the twelfth son of Jacob through his uh, concubine Rachel, or his uh, handmaid Rachel, excuse me. And it goes on in verse 30, and it says, And his firstborn was Abdon, 
Speaking of, uh, it says, Now the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Maacah, dwelt at Gibeon, then verse 30, and his firstborn son was Abdon, then Zur, and Kish, that ought to ring a bell, and Baal, and Nadab, Gador, uh, Ahio, Zechar, and Mikloth, who begat Shimei. These also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their brethren. Now in verse 33, we get to uh, really the, the point that we're looking at for Saul's life, because Ner, verse 33, begot Kish, and Kish begot Saul. So here is Saul's father. His name was Kish. And then Saul begot Jonathan, Melchishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. And the son of Jonathan was Meribal, and Meribal begat Micah. Now Meribal, here's one of those interesting names where if you look at that, you're wondering who could this be? Well, it's none other than Mephibosheth. So this is just another name of Mephibosheth is Merib Baal. Okay? So these are one and the same people. Same person. So Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son whom David, remember, had pity on after his father Saul and Jonathan were killed by the Philistines. And we see this kindness that David, and it's kind of interesting really because if you think of how David was running from Saul, once Saul knew that God's hand was lifted from him and God was with David, Saul went after David with all of his might and wanted to kill him. And an evil spirit came upon Saul at times and, and that didn't help matters much. And David was a vagabond for probably seven years or more, seven, maybe ten years. We think around seven or so. He's a vagabond running from Saul. And yet, after Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in a battle, we, we learn about this in 2 Samuel 31. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 31 where David, or Jonathan and Saul were both killed. And then Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, because of an oath that David and Jonathan, who were very close friends together, that's kind of an interesting thing. His father wanted to kill him, but his son is really best friends with David. I mean, this whole thing, I mean, who, I mean think of the movies. I mean, not that I would encourage movies, but this is really interesting stuff. Your father wants to kill me, and yet I'm your best friend. And they, they loved each other as, as men. They really loved each other in a, in, a, in a pure way, of course. And yet after Jonathan was killed and Saul, David took in Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet. And David allowed him to sit at his table. He wanted to show kindness because of the promise that he made to his best friend, Jonathan, even though Jonathan's father sought to kill him for seven years. What an amazing thing. Boy, love is a strange thing, isn't it? Love causes people to do strange things. And I mean that in the positive and the negative. But I love it when it's in the positive because love over, it overtakes everything. It, it overcomes common sense. Have you ever seen a man or a woman in love? Yeah. Some of you are looking at each other right now, and that's a good thing. I caught you. I saw you. Yeah, it's a good thing. Remember those early days? You would just do crazy things. I remember some things I used to do for my wife, and we weren't even married yet. You know, just things that, you know, just nobody would do. Nobody in their right mind would do it, but I did it. And, and the thing is, I want to endeavor to keep doing those crazy things. Right? But love is such a wonderful thing, and that's the kind of love that Jonathan and David had. I'd encourage you to, to read about this and, and, and let it get a hold of you. And think about the love of God. The greatest love was demonstrated on a cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of crazy love is that? Think of your worst enemy if you have one, and, and, or someone on earth that you really don't like, and, and be willing, and, and then to be willing to actually die for them, even though they spit in your face, even though they want nothing to do with you, and you die for them anyway. That is radical, radical love, and that is the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. That's true agape love, folks. And the closer we can get to that, the closer we are to the heart of God. And we need to hear that today, I believe. And i got to be honest with you, I need to remember that. Because as iniquity abounds, what does the Bible say? 
as we get further and further into the future and as things start to really heat up and we know Christ is coming back soon, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. And folks, that can be us. And I'll be honest with you, pray for me because sometimes I know I read too much and I know too many things and, and I, sometimes I've got to take a hiatus from it because it doesn't help me to love. But I find that when I, once I get back into the Word of God, then it, it, comes, it comes back. This is what I need to be spending more time on. It's so easy for us to get hateful. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who use you and persecute you, right? And that's something that is just foreign to our vocabulary. And I'll be honest with you, it challenges me to the core. But the closer we get to that, the more we understand the heart of God. It's hard, isn't it? I'm not going to lie. Anybody here think it's easy? I think that when we allow the Spirit of God to work in us, it's easy. Just don't think about it too hard. Just let Him do it. And just don't hate. <laughs> Help. Right? Are you with me? <laughs> so let's go on here. So, and, the, and then it says in verse 34, The son of Jonathan was Meribal, who is Mephibosheth, and Meribal begot Micah. And, so, um, and then the sons of Micah, it even gives the, um, um, Jonathan's uh, or Micah's sons. So the sons of Micah were Pithon and Melech and Taria and Ahaz. These were Saul's great-great-grandsons. And then it goes on in verse 36, and Ahaz begot uh, Jehoadah, and then it continues to go on, and then Moza begot Beniah, and then it goes on in verse 38, or Azel uh, had six sons whose name were these, and those names are listed. And then verse 39, and the sons of Eshek, his brother, were Ulam, his firstborn, Jeush the second, and Eliphalet the third. And then notice in verse 40, the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers, they had many sons and grandsons, 150 in all, and these were all sons of Benjamin. Now, what's interesting about these Benjamites is they had some great military skills. If you have a pencil or a pen, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible right about now and put in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, and also First um, Chronicles 12, verses 1 and 2. So Judges 20, verse 16. And then 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the reason why these men were so gifted is because most of the time in warfare, men were right-handed when they would throw something or when they would take a sword, they would swipe with their right hand. But it says that these, uh, in, in Judges 20, verse 16, it says these men, there were 700 of these guys who were left-handed. And they were very effective in battle because everyone else is using this other hand. They're trained that way. But these guys train this way. Can you, it's sort of like boxing with a, somebody who you always know is going to come over with, a, with, with this hand and you had no idea that he's actually better with the left hand. And he's going to make rubber out of you because you're not expecting it. And he's going to hit you this way and you're always expecting that and he's going to wallop you with the other one and you're not even going to see it coming. That's the way these guys were, and they were very effective in battle. In Chronicles 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. Pretty amazing fellows. So they were very effective. Now notice thus far, we're pretty much done with the different tribes' um, genealogies. But notice, there's, we didn't see Dan or Zebulun listed in, in, in any of this so far. And what's the reason for that? I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue why they're not here. In fact, Dan and Zebulun's genealogies are nowhere to be found in First and Second Chronicles period. And Dan, the tribe of Dan, is actually left out in other portions of Scripture as well, perhaps because of their idolatry. Because remember, uh, Jeroboam set up a, uh, a two centers of idolatrous worship. One was way up north uh, in Dan, which we visit this location when we go to Israel. And it's up in Dan, and the other one is in Bethel, in the center of the country. 
And they were places where they worshipped golden calves. Could it be that when they listed the 12 tribes, Dan is not listed because of their gross idolatry? Well, it could be, but guess what? They were all engrossed in idolatry. So in, for all intents and purposes, none of them should be listed, except for actually none of them. <laughs> Maybe the Levites. But Dan is left out in Revelation 7. You won't see his name listed in Revelation 7. And some have even speculated that the false prophet who is yet to come in the future may come from the line of Dan. Just a thought, something to think about. I'm not worried about who's going to be the Antichrist or the false prophet, because guess what? We're not going to be here. Are you excited about that? That is, if you're a pre-tribber, and the Bible speaks of a pre-trib rapture. They're, they're, that, that's very clear. So um, anyway, so let's look at chapter 9. So all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel, but Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. So now the chronicler is shifting way ahead of time here. And again, we don't know, we don't have this record in the scriptures, the, the book of the kings of Israel. We have the book of the kings of Israel and uh, uh, Judah, which is first and second kings, but there's also a record that's missing that we don't know of. And again, it's the chronicles of the kings of Israel, the northern ten tribes. It's not recorded in, its, in the Bible, although portions of it is in there in First and Second Kings, but we don't know where it is. And it's okay. Why? Because it's not really that important in the sense of God's book of redemption, because who is the book going to be about anyway? It's going to be about Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And is Judah the, northern, uh, the southern or the northern tribes? He's in the southern tribe, from the southern tribe. So that was the one that is most important, and that's the one that we have. Go figure. I think God knew what he was doing. He says, you don't need that. <laughs> Maybe someday they'll find it, and it'll just corroborate what we already have in First and Second Kings anyway. So, so based on this verse, as we already know, this chronicle was written sometime after Judah was taken captive to Babylon. Because you can't write about a captivity until it's happened, correct? So this was written after the captivity of Judah. And uh, we already talked about that when we first got into it. But notice verse 2. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions in their cities. And again, this is when they came back from their Babylonian captivity. It says the first inhabitants who came back after the, after the captivity, who dwelt in their possessions in their cities, were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nethanim. Now, chapter 9 that we're looking at here is the record of those who settled in Jerusalem and Gibeon after the 70-year captivity. And the list represented here should be and can be compared to Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 4 through 9, because that lists those peoples and those groups that came back from the captivity. You can compare these two lists, and there's some differences there. Um, as well. But the Nephinim here, these are an interesting group of people. These were temple slaves assigned to the Levites and the priests for service in the sanctuary. And whenever you see the word I am after a, a noun like Nephilim, im, whenever you see I am after a noun in the Hebrew, it always means plural. So the ne you know, Nephilim, the um, Kaftorim, uh, you know, the other words like that, and, and certainly this here. But notice now in verse 3, it says, Now in Jerusalem the children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh, Uthai, the son of Amihud, the son of Omri, the son of Imri, the son of Bani, of the descendants of Perez, the sons of Judah. Now from verses 4 through 6 are those who of Judah came and dwelt in Jerusalem again after the captivity. But let's look at verse 6 now. It says, And of those, of the sons of Zerah, who was from Judah, Jeuel and their brethren, 690 from Judah. And Zerah, verse 6, is not referred to in Nehemiah's um, uh, chronicle, meaning Nehemiah 11, verses 4 through 6. Zerah is not mentioned there. Um, which is why 
In Nehemiah 11, verse 6, there's a different number there. Rather than 690, it was something like 468. Again, these are just minor variations. Don't hang your hat on those and get too uptight about those. But then it goes on, of the sons of Benjamin, and it lists their names. And then let's go down to verse 9. And their brethren, according to their generations, notice 956, all these men were heads of a father's house in their father's houses. And then it talks about the priests in Jerusalem, of the priests, Jediah, Jehoiarib, and Yakin, and Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, and, it, and the son of Zadok. And it continues on there. Let's skip down to verse 13. And it says, And their brethren, the heads of their father's houses, 1,760, these were very able men for the work of the service of the house of God. I love that. 1,760 men, very able. And I, I love how that, the Lord puts that in there. He doesn't just say they were able, they were very able. They were trained, they really knew what they were doing. And, and you know, it's always good you know, in a church or in any church body to have men who really understand and catch the vision of the ministry and are, are equipped to, to serve in it. And we need that today because nobody wants to serve in the ministry. Very few people. So verse 14 of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Ezrakam, the son of Hashabiah, of the sons of Merari, Merari, excuse me. And then it lists their sons and it continues going on. But let's pick up at verse 17 and it says, And the gatekeepers were Shalom, Akub, Talman, Ahiman, and their brethren. Shalom was the chief. Until then they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east. And remember, in Israel there were four gates. Uh, you know, in the uh, around the around the temple and around the, um, uh, the the tabernacle, there was one in the north, and the south, and then the east and the west, and they were guarding those entrances uh, to the tabernacle. And they did that obviously once they built the temple later on in Jerusalem. And then it says uh, in verse nineteen, Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of uh, Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service. Notice gatekeepers of the tabernacle. These fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, had been the officer over them in times past, and the Lord was with him. And uh, Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And I love how even in this, they mention this man's name, and he's a doorkeeper. Isn't it amazing? Is there anything that we do in, the, in, 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 our, in our fellowship or in our service to the Lord that is insignificant? There, there really isn't. You know, this reminds me of Psalm 84, verse 10, and, and The psalmist said this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And what a glorious job. If that's all you've got to do, then do it with all of your heart and all your might. And think about this. Now here's where the rubber hits the road in service. And these men knew it all too well. Day after day after day, month after month, year after year, they're doing the same thing. And they're just like us. And remember, Nadab and Abihu, they got tired of the status quo. You know, we're tired of doing the same thing. Let's snazz it up a little bit. Let's just kick it up a notch. And God kicked them up a notch. He toasted them, fried them. Fire came out and consumed them because of their error. Because God said, this is all I want you to do, guys. Oh, we can do that, and guess what? We can do a few more things too, Lord. We can, uh, this incense thing, we're going to make it something real nice. And, and God says, don't you dare do it. And they did it, and they paid the price. Sometimes service to the Lord can be mundane. It can, be, it can get monotonous. I remember one time, and I'll, I'll share this with you, and I do this at the expense of time, <laughs> but it fits here. 
And I think it's important to, to be honest. I remember several years ago when we had the school here, so we're looking at you know, over you know, 12, 13, 15 years ago. There was a time when I was on staff here. I came on staff in 2003, I think it was, 2002, and um, was here from 1995 up until then. But I, I was on staff, and I remember after the kids had finished lunch, and I was in there, and I was doing a lot of stuff for the school. And at the time, I just I wanted to, you know, I was doing a lot of things with worship, and and I remember scrubbing the tables and mopping the floors. After every single day, every single day, every single day, every single day. And finally, you know, and I would listen to music. And, and I remember one time I just kind of stopped. And I'm just like, Lord, all I want to do is worship you right now. I just want to go in my office and, and learn a new worship song or something like that. And, 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 I, and I just thought to myself, you know, I just I can't do this. I can't do this for Jeff as much as I loved him. And the Lord says, can you do it for me? That got me. And I'm like, you know what? I've been doing it. I've been thinking about the, I've been, the object of my, what I'm doing is all wrong. And it was a good lesson. I'm still learning the lessons. So are you. But I was doing it. But sometimes when you come to the end of doing it for a person, you don't do it for a pastor. You don't do it for a movement. You don't do it for a name. At the end of the day, there's a point where you have to do it for God and be happy to do it for Him alone. And be glad, actually, and be privileged and thankful that you get to do that. And it changed my whole attitude. I, I, I can't say that I you know, was like uh, you know, Dick Van Dyke and kicking my heels and you know, singing Dancing in the Rain. I, I didn't, but I had a whole different attitude, and it helped me. And all of a sudden, it wasn't a drag to wash those tables and to mop those floors and to clean those toilets and unclog them because kids really like to clog up toilets. They like to stick an entire roll of toilet paper and just lodge it in there and flush it several times so that the, the toilet paper gets nice and brittle, but it's stuck and you, can't, and you actually got to reach in and grab it with your hand. It's really exciting. Aren't you glad to know that? Anyway, so anyway, verse 20. <laughs> All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212, and they were recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel the seer had appointed them to their trusted office. And so they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle. Notice, by assignment, the gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, the west, the north, and the south. And their brethren in their villages had to come with them from time to time for seven days. Because remember, David had set up a, an order and a schedule for these people, which is really wonderful. They had seven days, they had to do this thing, and then seven days, maybe a different thing. Or maybe they just were out of the rotation until another several months, and then they came back in that rotation again. That's one of the things that probably fought against the, uh, you know, getting used to things. They, they, they didn't get used to it too much before they had to be swapped out. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility. And they were in charge of opening it every morning. Now, verse 28, Now some of them were in charge of the serving vessels, for they brought them in and took them out by count. And some of them were appointed over the furnishings and over all the implements of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices. And some of the sons of the priests made the ointment of the spices Mattathiah of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in the pans. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. And these are the singers, heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties for their employment, for they were employed, excuse me, in that work day and night. And these heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites were heads throughout their generations, and they dwelt at Jerusalem. Now, verses 35 through 44 are nearly identical with what we have already read concerning the family line of King Saul, who was a Benjamite. And it's very uh, similar to what we read in Chronicles 8, verses 29 through 40. And notice in 35, verse 35 here, it talks about the family of King Saul. It says, Jael, the father of Gibeon, 
whose wife's name was Maacah, dwelt at Gibeon. And then it goes and lists his sons and their sons' sons, and it continues on. And let's skip down to verse 39, because it says, Ner begat Kish, and Kish begat Saul, and Saul begat Jonathan, Melchishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. Eshbaal is another name for Ishbosheth. So here's another uh, tricky name that uh, his name is Ishbosheth. You'll, you'll see that name in other parts of the scripture, but Ishbosheth and Ashbaal, they're one and the same people. So, verse 40 the son of Jonathan was Merib Baal, who we know is Mephibosheth. So, verse 41 the sons of Micah were Pithon, Melach, uh, Talriah, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begat Jara, and Jara begat Alamoth, and it continues to go on there uh, all the way uh, down to verse 44. And let's go ahead and pick up uh, in Chronicles chapter 10 here, where hopefully we'll get through and we will be finished uh, with this section. The, the nice thing about going forward from here is we're not going to be really in talking about genealogies any longer, but really focusing on David's reign all the way through Zedekiah, all the way back into their captivity in Babylon. So we're going we're gonna to read some more about uh, things that we have already covered in First and Second Samuel, but there's going to be a little bit more information. And, and there's still things for us to learn in that. And so I'm looking forward to visiting an old friend is really what this, the, this passage is that we're going to be looking at uh, coming forward. But if we look at First Chronicles 10... Um, it's going to be speaking of the tragic end of Saul and his sons. Now, remember, Saul, he reigned for 40 years from 1051 to 1011 B.C., 40 years. And remember, after him, David reigned for another 40 years from 1011 to 971 B.C., and then David's son, Solomon, reigned also for 40 years from 971 to 931 B.C. And then it was at 931 when the kingdom split and became a divided monarchy, or, or a divided kingdom, excuse me. It was a monarchy. Now it was going to be divided with Jeroboam overseeing the northern ten tribes and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, reigning over Judah and Benjamin in the south. And so let's read uh, verses uh, 1 now. And um, one thing you have to know about this, you might want to write in your margin, right at the top of chapter 10 here, write 1 Samuel chapter 31. Because for the most part, almost verse by verse, it's verbatim what you will find in 1 Samuel 31. And there's a few extra verses, and we'll look at why that is in just a few moments. But let's go ahead and read it. It says, Now the Philistines, verse 1, fought against Israel. So now we're going to begin with the, the king who was the real failure, Saul, the Benjamite. And then there's going to be a stark contrast after this. He's only mentioned because he was Israel's first king, what the people chose, and then God is going to spend the rest of Chronicles, first and second, talking about the Davidic dynasty. It was David all along that God had in his heart. But the people wanted something else. They wanted something else. And plus, David was, you know, he was very young. In fact, I don't even, I don't even know if he was, um, he might not have been born when Saul first became king. But God had in his heart David from the line of Judah and why? Because the prophecies went way back, all the way back in Genesis. We've, I, I've spent a lot of time talking about this, but Genesis 49, verse 10. What was that all about? It was about the Messiah coming through the line of Judah, through King David, finally, ultimately, through the bloodline of Mary to Jesus Christ. So now the Philistines, verse 1, fought against Israel. And so this is at the very last chapter of of, of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31. The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines. The Philistines, remember, were the perennial enemy of Israel. They were a non-Semitic people. Remember, they came from the island of Crete. 
So they actually came from the island of Crete out there in the, in the Mediterranean. And many, many, many years ago, way back before this, they migrated over and they tried to go down into Africa, into Egypt. And the Egyptians kicked them out and they were a seafaring people. So what they do? They rode up the coast and they lodged into where you and I would, would call Israel. And they, and they proliferated there and they developed horrible practices idolatrous, evil things that they did. That's why God wanted to eradicate the Philistines. So these were obviously in direct opposition when Israel came into the land. And so the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan. And and what a bummer that was because Jonathan of all of Saul's seed, Jonathan was the one guy who really had, I think, a really dynamite heart. This, this man had a heart unlike his father. It should have been Jonathan of all the line. It should have been him that sat on that throne instead of his dad. He was twice the man his dad was, maybe even more. He knew his place. He knew he wasn't going to be king. He knew that David was going to be king. And he didn't fight and fuss about it. He's like, you know, David, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. David says, you better believe it. And they they were friends. And there was no rivalry there. Jonathan willingly submit to his father's foe. And what an amazing fellow he was. But now he goes out and fights with his father, the Philistines, in his last battle... And both of them die. And the Philistines killed not only Jonathan, but Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and they abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. And so Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities, and they fled. And then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So this is a horrible day for the state of Israel, for the nation of Israel. Saul, their first king, he's dead. All of his sons are dead except for uh, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan's grandson and his, his kids, or Jonathan's uh, grandson, excuse me, or his son, excuse me. <laughs> Got to get my mind here. Jonathan's son, right? And so it happened the next day, and just picture a battlefield filled with men who have been killed and they laying there all night. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Geboa. And they stripped them, and they took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And they they put it in their temple of Dagon, and and actually... um, And it says, verse 10, Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon, this false god. Now, one of the differences is, I actually had both of these uh, chapter, 1 Samuel 31, open to this chapter, and you follow it and you read, and there's there's one little difference here, and and, and both of them are true, it's just one of them gave a little more detail because 1 Samuel 31 says this, because... Uh, chapter or verse 10 here says that they put his armor in the temple and they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Well, they may very well have done that, but what about the rest of his body? 1 Samuel 31 verse 10 tells us, it says, Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Beth Shan is a place we visit when we go to Israel. It's right just south of the uh, sea of Galilee a little bit. It was named, uh, it was one of the Decapolis. It was, one of, it was the only city of the ten cities that were Roman colonies that was west of the Jordan River. The other nine were on the other side of the Jordan River, on the east side. But notice in verse 11 going on here, so when all Jabesh Gilead heard that all the Philistines 
that all the Philistines had done to Saul, that all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and their bodies, and, uh, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones and under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, why would these men... These men of Jabesh-Gilead, who were men on the eastern side, if you were looking at a map of Israel, there's a Jordan River here, here's the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, so somewhere over in the north here was Jabesh-Gilead. Why would these men come down to Bethshan and take the body of Saul, bring it back, and burn his remains, and then take his bones and bury them under a tamarind? Why would they do that? Well... Because in 1 Samuel chapter 11, it tells us that one of the first things that Saul did as king when he became coronated is he delivered the men of Jabesh-Gilead from a man by the name of Nahash the Ammonite. He was an Ammonite. Remember, the Ammonites descended from who? Lot. Remember Lot's two daughters who gave birth? One was Moab, the other one was Ammon. So these are relatives of the Ammonites. So Nahash the Ammonite, a descendant of, or uh, his, descendant, his, uh, his ancestor was Lot. He was the progenitor of that race through an incestuous relationship between the father and the son, or father and the daughter, which is kind of weird. Actually, it's quite weird. So, so that's why. Saul and his army came and delivered them from Nahash the Ammonite and his armies. And so they were indebted to him. They loved him. So when they found out his remains were pinned against the wall for the enemy to see and everyone to rejoice over, they came when nobody was looking and somehow took the body away and gave him a proper burial. And so verse 12, all the valiant men rose, they took the body, and, and again, there's a difference here in, uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, in verse 12 and 13, it says this, that the valiant men arose and traveled all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in, at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Again, notice that both counts are correct. One gives a little more information than the other. Don't let that throw you. Think of the gospel accounts. The gospel accounts are a lot like that. You know, you have one thing that's happened and you got four, you know, four different people looking at it from different angles and understandings and at different times. But once you put those gospel accounts together, and I would encourage you to, to get a, um, a harmony of the gospels, and I love the harmony of the gospels, you put all those accounts together and you get this one complete story of all vantage points of what happened. And you can piece them together. It takes some time. And people have already done this. And it's really fantastic to watch and to look at. Because your depth and your understanding of those events becomes really rich. So, um, now verses 13 and 14 here in First Chronicles 10, they are not included in First Samuel 31. So now, the chronicler tells us why this was listed here. Notice what it says. So Saul, and this is something that um, uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 31 doesn't tell us. It just tells us the history of what happened, but now the chronicler tells us why this happened. It says, so Samuel died, why? For his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. And remember, although Saul was Israel's first king, God warned them that making a king for, of making a king for themselves. He warned them about that. Remember when Saul was old and his sons were judges over Israel but were not faithful, the people of Israel demanded to have a king over them just like all the other nations. It tells us that in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 7, where they said uh, you know, they, they wanted a king like, like the rest of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the nations around them. And then God comes in in 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, when all the people wanted this, it says, Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Whenever you have a prophet saying, Thus says the God of Israel, you better brace yourself because you're messing up. And they were. We want a king like everybody else. And so Samuel gets them all together. Okay, thus says the Lord God. And this is what he tells them. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up, I, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and this is God's words to them after they've been fighting to have a, we want a king just like everybody else. And finally God says, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all kingdoms, and from those who oppressed you, but you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations, and you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And through a process, God whittles down all these different tribes to the tribe of Benjamin, and then from the tribe of Benjamin to all these houses of the tribe of Benjamin, finally to Kish, and then finally they're looking for Saul. Where is he? Oh, he's over there. (laughs) And God also warned them about the behavior of royalty. You, You want a king for yourself? Well, this is what your king is going to do. It tells us in 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 10, it says this. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over thousands and captains over fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Some he will take... He will make his weapons of war and equipment. And he goes on and talks about the daughters and all the things that they're going to do and baking and all this stuff. Your king is going to put you to work. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? Yes, it's what we want. Okay, you're going to get it. Remember when they were going through the wilderness? We want meat to eat. This manna, we've had manna, we've had manna ice cream, we've had manna cotty. We had manna up to our ears. And God goes, well, you're going to have quail. It's going to come out your nose. All you can do is complain over what I've given to you. In the desert, every single day, you haven't had to do anything but walk out and grab it and eat it. Is that what you want? Well, that's, the, that's and he, he goes on, and, and we don't have time to go through that. But let me just end on a few things here really quick. There were two critical acts of disobedience that Saul did. The first one was his unlawful sacrifice. Because after we leave this chapter tonight, we're not going to talk about Saul anymore. It's going to be about David. And we're going to see the great juxtaposition between a failed king and one that, God, that the people wanted but God didn't want. And then we're going to find a man after God's own heart. whole different set of circumstances. But Saul, his two critical acts of disobedience is when he unlawfully sacrificed. There was a time when Samuel, they were going to have a, a, a feast or have a sacrifice, excuse me. And Samuel told Saul to wait for seven days. And so Saul is waiting for Samuel because Samuel is a Levite. Only he can do the sacrifice. So Saul is twiddling his fingers. Seven days goes along, and he's getting frustrated and and anxious. So he takes matters into his own hands, and he sacrifices. He wasn't supposed to do that. He's a Benjamin, not a Levite. Everybody knows that, so he's taking it upon himself. And then immediately after he does that, Samuel shows up. So Samuel was true to his word, but it just was a little bit later than what Saul wanted. So he was disobedient. And it says in 1 Samuel 13, verse 9, So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering instead of Samuel, who was really the only lawful one to do it. So that was the first thing. The second thing was God gave Saul a very clear and precise command. And it's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So God spoke directly to Saul. This is what I want you to do. This is it. Here it is. Listen carefully. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now, Saul, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Very clear, very precise. Wouldn't you agree? A very clear command, this is what I want you to do. So they go and they do this, this 
campaign, but they spare the best of the flock. They don't kill everything, and they certainly don't kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites. They bring him alive. And so when Samuel shows up, and he's hearing the bleeding of the sheep, and he's like, uh, Saul, what, what's all this noise in the back here? What's all that? Well, the people, you know, they wanted it to sacrifice. To, yeah, they wanted, to, they wanted the best to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then Saul blames the people. And then God says in 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of the Amal. Well, you weren't supposed to bring Agag back. He should be in pieces over there, back where you were. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, he says. But the people took but the, notice it, but the people took of the plunder. Sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed is sacrificed to the Lord your God. Notice he didn't say my God. They're going to sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Boy, that is a bitter pill. And God left them. And from then on, Saul was an empty man. And David was getting stronger and stronger, and Saul was getting weaker and weaker. And oh, it just drove Saul mad. He was so angry and jealous of David. And not only that, but David was a really good guitar player too, which I kind of like that too. He hated him. He could really play well. He could sing. He was handsome. Saul's like, man, I'm just washed up. I can't even play the harmonica. Can't even play dead. And then in Psalm or in, in Samuel 28, what does Saul do? And then we'll finish here. Saul consulted a medium. It was forbidden for them to consult mediums and spiritists and conjure the dead. Things that you see in Key West. If you go to Key West, they're all over the place. On every corner. Come get your palm read. Come find out. Oh, I got a future for you. Right? You see these, you know, makeup, they look like a, 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 a birthday cake, and they all walk in, they got this funny garb on, and they look like, you know, don't cry because it's all going to melt. You know, it's horrible. And it was forbidden by God. But what does Saul do? He goes headlong into it because that's all he's got. If he can't hear from God, if his heart's too stubborn against God, he'll certainly hear from the devil. And that was his heart. Notice in verse 14, but he, Saul, did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him. So who killed Saul? Was it the Philistines or God? Ultimately, it was God. That doesn't sit well with some of you, and I can understand why. It was God's doing, but at the hand of somebody else who wanted him dead anyway. Do you follow me? But God's purposes were done. Now David prayed. He inquired of the Lord several times, but you never hear of Saul inquiring of the Lord but David did. So what's the whole point of this anyway? I mean, I mean if, there, if there's one thing, I mean, we read a lot of names, we looked at a lot of stuff, but let me just bring it down to what we just talked about. Israel wanted what they wanted, and they would do anything to get it, and God says, you want it that bad? Then I'll give it to you. You want it that bad? Have you ever asked something? Have you ever wanted something so bad you'd do anything to get it? You know what that's called? It's called idolatry. When you will do anything, give anything to have whatever it is. It could be a job. It could be a possession. You'll do anything to get it. You'll sacrifice your own purity. You'll sacrifice your own integrity, your honesty. You'll sacrifice even your relationship with God, knowing in your heart, well, I'll just do this, and then I'll ask God to forgive me, and he will. 
You know what? And he, he will in his grace, but you know what? You're sowing something that if you're not careful, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. Yes, even as a Christian. Because if you want something so much, God may give it to you. And let me just finish with one thing. I have, to, I have to tie this up in a bow, and I apologize for the lateness of the hour. In Psalm 106, it'll make sense. Our fathers in Egypt, this is Psalm 106, verse 7, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he, God, saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The water covered their enemies there was not one of them left and when they believed his words they sang his praise they soon then forgot his works they did not wait for his counsel but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert here it is and he gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul that's exactly what they did with Saul He gave them the request but sent leanness to their soul. And that's what happens to any of us when we want something and we'll do anything to get it. God may give it to you to teach you. And he may not in his mercy because here's the thing and the wonderful thing that I love about God is he knows me more than I can possibly understand. He knows me better than I know myself. I don't even think I know myself. And I know that because I'm in certain circumstances and I act a certain way and I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And God's like, I knew that all along. I knew you were an idiot. And I'm like, oh, God, I just proved it. He's like, yeah, it's all right, Rob. Hey, did you learn something from it? Yeah, okay. Let's get back on the wheel. So be careful what you ask for, right? It's a good thing to consider. Hey, let's stand and pray. Next week, we will get into chapter 11 where we'll start talking about David and that's when things are going to get really exciting because no more Saul. Now we're going to talk about the Davidic dynasty and there's a lot there for us. So Father, we just thank you for this, uh, these passages of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you would um, just continue to give us uh, all that we need uh, from these things and just draw us close to you. And uh, just thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for the sweet time of being together. And uh, praise you, Jesus. Bless my brothers and sisters as they go about their day tomorrow. Keep them safe wherever they go tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.